From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. More than half a million men in America have a vasectomy every year. But sometimes, due to life circumstances, they decide later on they want to have another child. On today's program, we'll learn about vasectomy reversal surgery and male infertility from a Mayo Clinic expert. The data on it is a little bit more difficult to gather, but what we do know is that it also affects sperm counts and in some cases has actually been demonstrated to change the DNA that gets passed on to the offspring, which is kind of amazing that it has that kind of an effect. Also on the program, treatment for vocal cord paralysis and the heart condition mitral valve regurgitation. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Vasectomy. You've heard of it. Sure. It's, it's a procedure performed to make a man sterile. Not impotent, but sterile. And it's done by cutting or blocking two tubes called the vas deferens so that sperm can't get into the semen. It's done as an outpatient under local anesthesia and most of the time, I think it takes about 30 minutes. Now more than 500,000 men, half a million men have this procedure done every year and a fair number of them have it done during March Madness because they want to be on the couch anyway. (laughs) Good strategy. But what if something changes? What if you decide for whatever reason that you want to be able to have another child? Well, that requires a vasectomy reversal. And here to explain and to talk about male infertility is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Savan Hilo. Welcome to the program. Great. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. At the very beginning, Dr. Shives said uh, a procedure performed to make a man sterile, not impotent, but sterile. And that is probably the number one misconception. That's a very common question that patients ask is, will this affect my erectile function or my sex drive? And the answer is no. Is this very common? More common than you would think. So you mentioned about half a million men each year get a vasectomy done. Um, Of those, about 6% will ultimately elect to have that reversed. So, I mean, that's a higher number than you'd imagine. Why? Many reasons. Usually it's a change in life circumstances, um, often remarriage or loss of a child, or sometimes couples change their mind and decide that they do want more children after all. Yeah. What's the average age, would you say? Usually men in their 30s, mid to late 30s would be most common. Is there anybody where where you can't do it? Typically, obtaining the history is really key. So the number one factor that's factored into success is how far out they are from their initial vasectomy. So generally, men who are under 10 years have much higher success rates than those who are more than 10 years out from their vasectomy. There isn't a patient that we wouldn't offer it to, but we certainly would counsel them regarding success rates. Since pain and possible impotency is the main reason why people are afraid to get a vasectomy, Mm -hmm. is the level of pain... Is it a bigger deal to have a reversal of vasectomy? That's a good question. So as you mentioned, a vasectomy itself is a pretty simple procedure, about half an hour. To have it reversed um, takes anywhere from two and a half to four hours. Um, so it's much more involved. And we use an operating microscope to do it because what we're connecting is so small um, that we really need the magnification to do it. So recovery time is definitely longer than your initial vasectomy. 
Do you do it in the office? We do, and it's unique to Mayo Clinic. Uh, as far as I know, we're the only academic center um, in the country that does it in the office under local anesthesia and um, and some sedation. But uh, insurance doesn't pay for this, right? So that's a big factor in deciding whether you want your vasectomy reversed or not is cost, as you would imagine. Cost varies dramatically from a few thousand dollars up to $20,000. Depending on where you're at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at Mayo, it's? It's about $5,000 if you're willing to have it done in the clinic um, and a little bit more if you want it done in the operating room under anesthesia. And most people elect to do what? Uh, I would say 90 to 95% elect to do it in the clinic. Less expensive. Yes. (laughs) You're going to use a microscope. Tell us about the operation. It's complicated? Um, So essentially what we do at the beginning uh, is we find the spot where the initial vasectomy was done, where that tube was cut that carries the sperm. Because there's still a little incision there, you mean? Um, There's usually some amount of scar tissue, and some people use clips, which make it easier to find. Um, So we find that area. We bring it up, open it up, and look for sperm under the microscope. And if we see sperm or any parts of sperm, we can make a simple connection right there with those two ends. Oh, you're looking for sperm in the end that connects to the testicle. Correct. Okay. Yep. And, and usually there's some fluid coming out, um, which uh-huh. is a good sign too if we see fluid. And we'll take that fluid and put it on a little microscope slide and then look under a microscope for sperm. Okay. So then you just connect the two. If we find sperm or um, parts of sperm, then we can connect it right there and then. And is that uh, with stitches? Um, we connect it with tiny stitches. Yes. Again, that's <laughs> no the reason we need. That's the reason <laughs> we need the microscope. As the suture is so tiny, it's um, finer than a strand of hair. If we don't see sperm, uh, then essentially we need to make a connection from that tube that carried the sperm all the way to the part of the testicle itself that's called the epididymis. And that's basically where all the sperm are stored after they're made in the testicle. The Um, epididymis. The epididymis. And the um, epididymis, making that connection takes much longer. Um, It's technically much more difficult because we're connecting two things that are so different in size. Um, It's like trying to connect a garden hose to a drinking straw, essentially. And so... So that's why that's much more likely to fail. And that might take three or four hours for you, to do, for you to do that. And we won't know what we're doing until the time of surgery, so you have to be prepared for either. And how often does that happen, where you have to connect the vas deferens down to the testicle? The um, for patients who are more than 10 or 15 years out, that number goes up significantly. I would say maybe 10 to 20% of the time in general, we have to be prepared to make that more complex connection. So what's recovery like? Regardless of which connection we have to make, recovery is pretty Pretty similar for the patient. Um, I tell them uh, to take it easy, no jumping, uh, straining, heavy lifting for at least four weeks, which is hard because these are young guys who are really active. Um, but keeping in mind the small size of the suture we're using to connect things, I advise them if they want this to be successful, take it as easy as possible. No rugby. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely no rugby. So for four weeks, um, at two weeks, they can start ejaculating, and at four weeks, they can start trying with their partner. Four weeks after mm-hmm. the, the procedure. And then mm-hmm. what's the success rate? I'm sure you followed these people who've had a reverse vasectomy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how many of them are able to conceive? 
Um, so I quote patients anywhere. It's a vast range, anywhere from 30% up to 90 or even 95% success rates. And after we're done with the surgery and we know exactly what kind of connection we made, you can give them a much more specific number. But for a patient who is less than 10 years out and had a simple connection on both sides, um, those success rates are up to 90%. Do you ever, um, someone come in, comes back in and they can't conceive and you say, I can't believe that didn't work. We got to go back in there. Do you ever go back in and try again? You can do a redo operation. As you might imagine, success rates for that are lower than the first time around. Your best chance is your first chance. Um, there's more scar tissue. We have less um, of that tube to work with because we've used some of it up making that other connection. Um, but if patients want to redo, we certainly can offer that to them. All right. Well, if you've had a vasectomy and you have a change of heart or change your mind or something, life situation changes, it can be reversed. But I think that part of the lesson here is that you don't want to let just anyone do that. <laughs> nope. Is it true? I would say the training and the experience of your surgeon will likely have the biggest impact on whether or not this operation is successful? Absolutely. After um, time from vasectomy, surgeon is definitely the next most important factor by far. Um, as you might imagine, it's not a procedure that every urologist performs um, and oftentimes is advertised on the internet with uh, very appealing prices by people who sometimes aren't urologists and sometimes Sometimes aren't surgeons, so you definitely want to do your research and make sure that you get the right surgeon. And you do one to three a week. That's correct. And the interesting thing is that the pregnancy rates following vasectomy reversal are, are pretty good, somewhere between 30% up to 90 or 95%. Correct, um, and that a lot varies on your partner. Her partner age is really the most important factor there. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about male infertility, causes, diagnosis, and treatments, and tell you the seven deadly sins of sperm. <laughs> You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is a urologist at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Savan Hilo. We've talked about vasectomy reversal. Now let's talk about male infertility. How do you define infertility and how often is it a problem with the male? So infertility is typically defined by the inability to conceive after one year of unprotected intercourse um, with a couple. Um, And that rate of infertility um, is anywhere up to 15% of couples will have trouble conceiving. It, the, because of the male. And and if they come in and, and I presumed, do they always check the female first or do both get checked at the same time to try to figure out what the problem is? Typically, we'd recommend that both um, be checked out simultaneously. And how do you check them out? Um, on the male side of things, um, the history is really key for men. And infertility in general is an increasingly uh, greater problem than it has been. For uh, semen analyses showed that um, sperm counts have dropped by nearly 40% over the last six years, just in general. Now, how do you explain that? So uh, some of the theories are that it might be environmental exposures, things that we're unaware of, constant radiation that we're exposed to. Um, other things are lifestyle factors, um, which some of which are modifiable. What are the worst ones? Um, some of the worst we'll talk about, some of those <laughs> sins later on. Okay. Um, but uh, but some of them are just uh, common sense, you know, smoking, diet, 
exercise, those sorts of things. So you said sperm counts are down by 40% over mm-hmm. the past six years. 60 years. 60 years, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't really have a good explanation for that, but obviously the more sperm you have, the more likely you are to be able to conceive. Correct, yeah. So it's really a numbers game. It does only take one sperm, um, but you need as many as you can possibly get to increase your chances. For, I mean, women are w- waiting longer mm-hmm. to have their to start their family, so mm-hmm. men are part of that equation as well. Does that make mm-hmm. a difference, the age of the father? Absolutely, um, and you'd never know it because you hear about women and their biological clock all the time, um, but men have a biological clock as well. So the first thing that you do is a sperm count. Correct. Okay, and let's say, um, what can be wrong there other than can there be abnormal sperm as well as not enough? So the two main things that I typically look at on the semen analysis is the counts, so the concentration of sperm, and the motility or how well that sperm is moving. Because ideally you want sperm that are motile. Um, the Those are the sperm that are going to fertilize the egg. Some of them don't swim very well. Correct. And can you fix that? Um, we can't fix it with medication or surgery, but that's where artificial reproductive technology comes in. What are the things that you can fix with regard to male infertility? So the number one thing that we can fix um, is men who have a varicocele. So that's uh, essentially like dilated veins to the testicle. I describe it to patients as varicose veins almost of the testicle. Um, Those dilated veins increase the temperature surrounding the testicle, which um, decrease sperm production. Too warm. Correct. All right, yep. and you you remove those varicosities mm-hmm. uh, adjacent to the testicle, and mm-hmm. that cools the testicle down. Correct. Uh, which is, by the way, why the testicles are outside our body, right? Yes. Um, all about temperature regulation. Yeah, because they used to be up in our abdomen, right? Correct. And when mm-hmm. do they come down? What? Um, so they're supposed to descend um, before birth. Uh, and in some cases, they don't. And in that case, it's called an undescended testicle. And men with an undescended testicle, either on one side or both, are more likely to have problems with fertility. But you can go get it, right? We can. Usually, the quality of the sperm we'll find um, is not uh, as normal. And let's say all comers, 15% of the time, it's a problem with the male when it mm-hmm. comes to conception. Mm-hmm. What, uh, how many of those can you help? What percentage so that they can conceive? I would say of that percentage, there's probably a 5 to 10% um, group that there's definitely something we can fix. And then there's another almost 50% of that group that there's something we might be able to modify to improve things, but that it might not be a smoking gun that we can fix. And what if that, what if you can't do that? What what else can you do? Assisted reproductive mm-hmm. technology I'm thinking about. Yeah, so other options for patients um, would be to go through uh, in vitro fertilization or intrauterine insemination um, and which of those two options are available to them d- sometimes depends on the sperm counts of the male. You need a certain threshold to be able to do intrauterine insemination um, and then a large part depends on the female. So if there are any female factors that also create a challenge then really in vitro fertilization is your best option. And sometimes you actually have to go get the sperm out of the testicle, right? Correct. So some men um, ejaculate almost no sperm or very few sperm. Um, In those cases, we can essentially do almost like a biopsy of the testicle where we retrieve sperm directly from the testicle itself. um, And then that sperm could be used for in vitro. So what do you mean by in vitro? 
um, in vitro fertilization. So they're going to um, essentially what they'll do is they will look at the sperm under the microscope, find the best sperm they can, the best quality sperm, um, and then use that sperm to fertilize an egg um, and then reimplant that into the female to carry. Okay, and that's pretty successful. Correct. Yeah, and again, that depends um, a large part on the female and her overall health. So what treatment is available for so, couples? So um, it depends what the issue is. Um, on the male side of things, um, part of our workup usually includes labs to look at their hormones to make sure that all the hormones are, um, are appropriate um, and are optimized for them um, for sperm production. So you mean some, they might not have enough testosterone or too much? Or? Correct. Usually it's not enough. Um, and if that's the case, there are medications we can use to try and increase the testosterone, but more so the sperm production. All right. I guess we're ready for the sins, the seven deadly sins of sperm. Is this a new book you're working on? <laughs> it's a great it's a idea bestseller. for one. That's right. Um, so the first one we sort of uh, touched on is age. Um, you'd never think of age as a factor in men because you see all these men in Hollywood having kids well into their 60s mm-hmm. with what seems like without a problem. But um, in reality, the quality of sperm deteriorates over time. And specifically, the DNA damage within the sperm is more likely to be increased over time. And if the DNA is damaged, it's going to be less able to fertilize an egg. Sin one. Correct. Don't don't get older. Don't get too old. (laughs) Number two uh, is alcohol. Alcohol uh, also increases overall sperm concentration or the counts and the motility. And that can be with as little as one to two drinks a night, which is, you know, it's not uncommon to have a glass of wine at night. Um, So as little as one to two drinks can affect your sperm counts. Okay. Number three. Smoking. Smoking is a big one. Smoking affects um, the concentration, the motility. It decreases testosterone. Smoking decreases testosterone. Correct. Wow, that should be on the side of cigarette packages. That's right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Number four. A different kind of smoking, marijuana, which now is much more common than it used to be as it becomes more widely available across the country and is often a popular choice among some of our younger patients. Um, So marijuana is interesting. The, The data on it is a little bit more difficult to gather. It's more difficult to study. But what we do know is that it also affects sperm count. And in some cases has actually been demonstrated to change the DNA that gets passed on to the offspring, which is kind of amazing that it has that kind of an effect. Five. Number five is stress. So that's a very common one, and it's very difficult to avoid. But the good news is you can combat that stress um, with exercise, which is good for many other things. And as little as two or more hours a week of strenuous to vigorous physical activity can help boost your sperm counts. Okay. Six and seven. A six is uh, diet, which is a big one. <laughs> Specifically, red processed meats appear to affect sperm counts for whatever reason. It may be some of the chemicals that's used in the preservatives of the meat. So if you're looking to uh, to conceive, I'd recommend maybe cutting back on that. The last one, obesity. Body mass index and waist circumference correlate directly to sperm counts. I guess if you really want to have a child, you really got to give up a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you have right. to be willing yeah, that's right. to go. That's right. Yes. I've had patients say to me, uh, I've given up all the things I love in life, and I've got a halo <laughs> over my head. What's left? Yeah. But I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. Savan Hilo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about vocal cord paralysis and the latest treatments for mitral valve regurgitation. Along with a health minute from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. As far as to-do lists go, quitting smoking could be the most important choice on a smoker's list. Smokers are more likely to develop diseases like lung, throat, and mouth cancer, and they're more likely to die earlier than are people who don't light up. Dr. J. Taylor Hayes, director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, says it's never too late to quit the habit. He asks younger smokers, those younger than 40 years old, if they want to add 10 years to their lives. And if their answer is yes, he says to quit smoking. Quit if you want to avoid the ill health effects of smoking-related issues such as chronic lung disease, heart disease, and lung cancer. If you stop at a young age, he says you can avoid virtually all of them. And he says you'll add years, not just to the length of life, but to your quality of life. As for older smokers, Dr. Hayes says it's never too late to stop, Make a plan and stick to it. And that plan should include some counseling, behavioral therapy, and medications that will reduce withdrawal and help maintain abstinence. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, can you imagine losing your voice? Happens sometimes. Well, it does happen. And the vocal cords can stop working. And paralysis of the vocal cords occurs when the nerve impulses to your voice box, also called your larynx, they're disrupted or for some reason. And if the nerve doesn't work, the vocal cords don't work. And that can affect your ability to talk, even breathe. And here to tell us more about vocal cord paralysis is Mayo Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat Specialist, Dr. Dale Eckbaum. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Good to have you on the program. So tell us, you know, we take our vocal cords for granted, most of us. Tell us a little bit about the vocal cords. Yeah, they're very complex, you know. Um, it's really amazing because the vocal cords... They have many layers to them, and the the outer part of the vocal cords is a vibratory layer that allows you to just, you know, have that beautiful sound that you can create, whereas the deeper layers are more of a firm ligament, and then there's muscle beyond that. So it's uh, it's it's really hard to replicate that, you know, research-wise and everything, and, and uh, it's pretty amazing. So they do a couple of things, though. They allow you to, to speak and to talk, but they also protect... Uh, you from aspirating something, right? Yes. I mean, they stay closed, so you, when you chew and swallow, it doesn't go down your trachea. Exactly. When you swallow, the vocal cords come together, and they protect your airway. You don't want anything down there because that's aspiration or could result in pneumonia. So that closes down nicely, and then uh, and then you just are able to pass the food along the sides of the larynx down into the esophagus. And so it's pretty neat. Vocal cords, they vibrate anywhere between 100 and to 1,000 times a, a second. So it's it's pretty amazing how fast they're vibrating. When I have laryngitis or if you have a sore throat and you sound hoarse, is that your vocal cords? Yes, the vocal cords typically get swollen when that happens. There's some redness, there's inflammation, and then the voice often deepens a bit and becomes rough with the, with the laryngitis. So what can cause the vocal cords to stop working? Well, yeah, so we see, we see vocal cord paralysis quite a bit in my laryngology clinic, and and uh, there's lots that can, that can cause it. Uh, the number one thing is probably surgery um, of the either anywhere along the course of the nerve that goes to the vocal cord. So skull base surgery, neck surgery, chest surgery, any of that can cause vocal cord paralysis. So, so for whatever reason, that nerve is damaged. Yes. Is that the recurrent laryngeal nerve, that's, as I recall? That's it. And that's it supplies it. Uh, the vocal cord, the muscle of the vocal cords. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And usually this would be on one side. 
Yeah, usually one side. You can have it on both sides, but um, typically if it's a surgical thing, it's one side. Um, other causes can be, you know, tumors. You know, ne- um, we call it neoplasms, and anywhere again along the course of that recurrent allergic nerve, and Put, then, just puts pressure on the nerve, and puts pressure on the nerve, or infiltrates the nerve, you know, and and uh, takes away the the movement of that vocal cord. And probably the third category. So, tumors are the the one of the categories. Surgery is another, and then the third category would be this idiopathic or unknown cause, where it can be a, a virus, most likely. In if it's case. caused by surgery, does does it recover? Does that nerve recover most of the time, or it can actually be cut where it doesn't recover? Yeah, if it's cut, it never recovers. If it's stretched, it can recover maybe half the time or less than half the time. So, And sometimes recovery can be improvement in voice, but just a more midline position of that vocal cord that's paralyzed. And so it does, still doesn't move, but you can get a voice again just by it moving to the middle. Um, so that's how that works. Yeah, and so you uh, have some options. If, mm-hmm. if that nerve never recovers, what can you do to restore a, a fairly normal voice? Yeah. So uh, say that again. I, I missed the part. You said that if that vocal cord uh, doesn't work, if the nerve to that vocal cord on one side is paralyzed, what does your voice sound like? Do you have a voice at all? Yeah, so some people and most people end up having a breathy sound, almost like a voice like this, kind of a whispery okay. sound to their voice. Some people have rough, rough voice, and other other folks um, can have a a pretty good voice. It really depends on where that that paralyzed cord ends up. Mm-hmm. If it's more of a lateral or out position, then mm-hmm. the vocal the other vocal cord can't connect to it. Yeah, okay. And then so you have that breathy sound. Whereas if it if it paralyzes and it ends up being more in a middle position, you can actually get closure and can have a voice that is pretty close to normal in some, or at least you know eighty percent. And how do you fix this? How do you solve this problem? Yeah, so there's there's different options. You know, it depends on when it happened. Uh, we do have to, you know, some of these vocal cords uh, start moving again over time. So it can take... When the nerve recovers. Yeah, yep. And so you have to think about waiting anywhere between, you know, nine months to a year. And sometimes you can have recovery even later um, uh, with that. So you don't we don't do anything permanent in terms of surgery until it's been close to a year. But in the meantime, we do a lot of vocal cord injections. And so that's kind of our temporizing measure. Some of those end up lasting long term for patients. Now, what is that? Mean? Yeah, how does that work? Yeah, so vocal cord in, uh, injections, we, in, we inject the vocal cord either awake or asleep. And we do it with collagen as one material. Another material is hyaluronic acid gel. That's called Restylane. So there's different materials with fat sometimes. So there's Does different materials. Does it change material. the sound of your voice? Yeah. So then what cool. happens? Yeah, it's amazing because <laughs> it pulls it. It just it just injects into the cord and then pushes it more to that midline position. So the other cord can meet it. So the other cord can meet wow. it. It doesn't cause movement again. It just gets it more to midline. Oh, yeah. Pretty neat. Yeah. And what about the surgery? What types of surgery do you have available, and when do you choose to employ that? Yeah, so surgery, um, that's after about after it's been about a year, we uh, start talking about the permanent uh, options that we can do. One of them is an implant. Um, it's called thyroplasty, where you actually carve an implant or layer in an implant. We go and operate, and we actually go into the neck, create a little window at the level of the thyroid cartilage, and then push this implant in. So, again, it pushes the vocal cord more to the middle, and then the other side can connect to it, and that's a permanent thing. So that's what is implant. that made out of? So that's made out of silastic is one material. Um, Gore-Tex is another material. A ribbon of Gore-Tex is used sometimes. Those are the main two. 
Wow. Yeah. So, is is voice therapy part of this? I mean, either before or after? Yes, sometimes. It can be. If you have a patient that has fluctuating voice, like if they're more towards the middle, you know, with their vocal cord and they're connecting fairly well, but they say, boy, the voice is like 90% sometimes and 50% other times. So then a speech language pathologist can work with them and, and, uh, and get them to more of that 90% more often. They work on the muscles of the neck, the airflow, the resonance of the pharynx, other things to... Do you ever try to repair that nerve that goes down to the vocal cord? Yes. Yeah, we do. Um, some, that's another permanent option. So one is that implant that I was talking about. The other is called reinnervation. You, you can put a, a branch of a nerve that goes to your strap muscles into that nerve that goes to your vocal cord and connect them. It does not allow movement of the cord, but it allows for really nice bulk. And it works well in younger people, especially where the nerve grows back faster. And the bulk um, affects not just an implant pushes right at the level of the vocal cord itself, but like a, a reinnervation will infiltrate all all the nerves that go to all the different muscles around the larynx, you know, that are innervating that uh, that uh, those vocal cords. So, wow. and and what allows it to move open and closed and everything else. So it's pretty it's pretty amazing what that can do. All right, Dr. Dale Ekbaum, he's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Paralysis of the vocal cords. Difficult problem, but sounds like you've got a lot of options for treatment. Sure do. Thanks so much for talking about it. We'll take a short break. When we return, we'll discuss the heart condition, mitral valve regurgitation. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. There is a condition called mitral valve regurgitation. Big doctor words. Sure. Uh, but it's when the mitral valve, which is one of the valves in your heart, doesn't close tightly. And that allows blood to flow backward in your heart. Not a good thing. And the blood, it's going the wrong way. It's backing up instead of going out to the rest of your body. If it's bad enough, it can cause symptoms like make you tired or short of breath. The good news is it's usually fixable. All right, and we have somebody here who knows how to That's do That's that. right. Here to explain is Dr. Abdallah El-Sabah, cardiologist. That's a heart specialist from the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Welcome to Rochester, and nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the, these valves in the heart. What do they do? Absolutely. So the valves, the role of the valves is to allow, as you alluded, is to allow blood to go from one direction to the other and then close in the second part of the cardiac cycle to prevent blood from going backwards. And this way, the bloodstream and the circulation maintains a uniform or one-way, uh, one-way direction. And uh, that's important to perfuse the organs of the body. And today, we're going to talk about the mitral valve. Tell us a little more about that. It's on the left side of the heart. Exactly. So the mitral valve separates the left upper chamber of the heart from the left lower chamber of the heart. So then the blood gets drained from the lungs into the left upper chamber of the heart, across that mitral valve into the left lower chamber of the heart. And then the left lower chamber of the heart squeezes and the mitral valve closes to prevent it from going backwards to the left upper chamber of the heart and forces it to go forward across the aorta to the rest of the body. 
And that valve can be damaged for lots of reasons? Exactly. In order to understand what could go wrong with the mitral valve, it's important to understand the anatomy of that mitral valve. So the mitral valve is made of two leaflets, which are basically the the two seals, and they are connected very closely to the left lower chamber and the left upper chamber of the heart. So then you can imagine that anything that could go wrong with the leaflets or with the left upper or left lower chamber of the hearts can then lead to a malfunctioning of that mitral valve and then uh, leads it from uh, leads it to uh, leak backwards. And, and what happens? Does the valve just wear out over time, or are there other conditions that can cause it? Definitely, there are multiple, multiple conditions. The most common condition, or what we call primary mitral valve regurgitation, is the, is the problem in the, um, the leaflets themselves. And the most common cause of that is a condition called mitral valve prolapse. It's mostly an inherited condition where the mitral valve leaflets are very redundant. And so it starts from young age, and then it can progressively get worse and worse. What do you mean when you say that they're redundant? So the leaflets themselves, uh, they're, the, the tissue of the leaflets, they're longer than it, what it should be. So then when the leaflets ah. close, um, there's a gap. So they kind of overlap but don't seal correctly. One leaflet overrides the other. Uh-huh. and So, um, so you're born that way. It, it's not technically born that way. People uh, develop it as the mitral valve grows. And, really? Uh, so that's kind of how it, it happens. It's not They're born with the, the genetics to develop it, and then uh, it can progressively get worse and worse. But just the, the leaflet tissue itself is prone to that redundancy. If you've had rheumatic fever as a child, can that result in mitral regurgitation? Absolutely. It's, one of the, uh, it's probably one of the most common causes in the developing countries if not the most common now. Fortunately, we don't see it that we often in this country anymore. anymore. No, so that, that the, the mechanism here is different where the, the leaflets get inflamed and so they retract and then that's how they get leak, ah. leaky. So, Is this what, uh, when a doctor uses a stethoscope to listen to my heart, is this what they're listening for? Exactly, the murmur. So the, any time you hear the word murmur, it means that the blood is gushing from one chamber to the other across um, across a valve. Uh, most commonly. So. so when you listen with a stethoscope, it should be fairly quiet. You should just hear the lub-dub and not the whoosh. So sometimes we we hear a faint murmur, and we call it a functional murmur. It's common in younger people, and, uh, and it's common in anemic patients. Um, but anyone who has... Uh, is prone to cardiac disease, or if it's if the murmur is loud, then we have to investigate it further. There Anem- are benign murmurs. Anemic patients, patients who have a low hemoglobin. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Uh, so, what do you? How do you make the diagnosis? I mean, obviously, if you hear a murmur, that's a suggestion, but that doesn't tell you exactly what's wrong, does it? No, no, it doesn't. So, uh, you obviously, as you mentioned, it starts with a physical examination, and if the suspicion is there, the next step would be to image using echocardiography. So, it's a very important. Um, to, to, to get that next step where it's an ultrasound test with a probe over the chest that we take pictures of that mitral valve and we use what we call Doppler signals to, to look at the flow of the, the red blood cells inside the heart. Doing an echocardiogram, which is a relatively simple test, no radiation, you could diagnose it pretty definitively. Yes, definitely. And uh, if the patient has symptoms, what are those and how bad do they have to be before you decide you need to do something? That's a great question, and in fact, uh, it's one of the major problems that we face with diagnosing and, and treating uh, mitral valve regurgitation because it's important to understand the natural history of, the, of mitral regurgitation. So what happens is that 
um, the, as the blood is leaking, the, the leak is probably mild and moderate to begin with. And so what ends up happening is that left lower chamber of the heart is now receiving blood from the left upper chamber of the heart and then the leaked blood that went up. So it's receiving extra volume of blood. And in order to cope with that, the left lower chamber of the heart then starts to dilate, dilate, and then the function starts dropping. And then at the end of the spectrum is when the symptoms start. So it's actually, when the symptoms start, there might be, might have been irreversible damage. It's sometimes mm. too late. So it's very important to that annual checkup with the uh, with the physicians or, 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 the, or the primary care team. And that's incredibly important because the, the, it starts with the murmur, and then that's how the close monitoring occurs because we really want to catch it before symptoms start. So symptoms start. There's a shortness of breath mainly, lower uh, extremity swelling, fatigue. Um, sometimes atrial fibrillation happens, and it's an irregular heart rate. And, and that's mitral regurgitation um, uh, is a, one of the causes or one of the uh, contributors to that. So uh, is of it, an abnormal heart rate. An abnormal heart rate. Is it easy to fix? Um, it depends. And how do you <laughs> do that? So right now we... It depends on the first of the first step is when we make the diagnosis of the mitral regurgitation. We we divide the we divide the diagnosis into two. The first entity or the first mitral valve regurgitation diagnosis is called primary mitral regurgitation, and that's a problem with the leaflet itself. Whereas secondary mitral regurgitation is a problem with the muscle of the heart dilating and pulling apart the mitral valve. So the, the treatment differs between the two. If it's a problem with the leaflets or mitral valve uh, or primary mitral valve regurgitation, what we do now is what we call a heart team approach, meaning that a team of interventional cardiologists, um, echocardiographers, or, and valve specialists, as well as cardiac surgeons, the, th- the whole team approaches the patient, and that's a very. Th- it's a. Uh, it's one thing that we're very proud of here at Mayo Clinic, because uh, the treatment differs. It depends on the patient's comorbidities and status, the anatomy of the valve, and the treatment ranges from simply. I mean, ranges from uh, surgery, where we can do robotic surgery. We can do uh, through an incision at the side of the chest, or through an, a sternotomy, where we go in the middle of the chest. Sternum uh, right in front. You have to split the chest and go in and fix it. Exactly. That's once. So that's the surgical spectrum, and we always, always aim to repair the valve, meaning we leave the the leaflets intact, but we just or the surgeon just cuts and and sutures the leaflets in a way where they don't have to remove the mitral valve and, and place a prosthetic valve. That has the best outcomes. Now, uh, obviously, it all depends on the anatomy and the amount of calcium. Many other considerations that, that are technical, and a lot of times, and sometimes the surgeon has to, has to replace the valve. Um, and then on the other spectrum, if, if the patient is at high risk for surgery, um, we have what we call the mitral clip, where it's a percutaneous device that we go up from the leg and we grasp the leaflets together, and, and that's a minimally invasive under general anesthesia without any incisions. Now, on the other hand, if it's secondary mitral valve regurgitation, the main focus is to treat the left lower chamber of the heart, which includes medications and um, other therapies like uh, devices or pacemakers that are uh, that synchronize the heart. Uh, and then, uh, and then if that if the leak remains, a lot of times when the heart remodels, the leak the leak goes away. But if it doesn't, then uh, the next step from a recent trial. Uh, showed that it, the clip actually is helpful in these patients. And if that doesn't work, you actually have to replace the valve. Is it a mechanical valve or is it a tissue valve? Or do you have both? It's a great question. Um, it depends, obviously, on the patient and the age. Um, 
and it's because it's on the left side of the heart and it's fairly a, a, a low flow, lower flow than across the aorta, a lot of surgeons are putting in tissue valves now. Um, and the second reason is Coming that... Coming from other humans or cows or where do you get the tissue? It's from the outer layer of the cow's heart or the pig's heart. Okay. And so they Rejection a problem? Not a problem, but it's postulated because these, these valves last about 10 years. Sometimes they degenerate earlier. But the good news is that if that happens in the mitral position, we have a percutaneous option now where we go from the leg and deploy a transcatheter valve inside that failed bioprosthetic valve. No incisions, except no, in the groin. Except wow. in the groin. Pretty amazing. Well, so, whatever the problem is, you can fix it. I suppose. <laughs> mitral <laughs> regurgitation. Our thanks to Abdullah El Sabah, interventional cardiologist, Mayo Clinic in Florida, visiting in Rochester. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.